All right, good morning. I am feeling really good. I don't know if you know, but last week I was not feeling very good. And I just faked it for the sermon. But I was literally, before, before I was preaching last week, I was in that closet, like on the floor, sleeping. Um, and then came out here and like got through the sermon. And so people asked me today, like, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I am having a wonderful Sunday. Like, I am really um, having a good time. So thank you for being happy for me. We are in a series called Life of Paul, Series 3, and that's because this is the third series that we've been on in the Life of Paul. We covered the Life of Paul quite a bit last year with this Life of Paul and then Life of Paul, Series 2, and in the first one, we covered like kind of the first third of his life, and in the second one, we covered the second third of his life, and we are now kind of finishing up the story and covering the final third of Paul's life with this series. We are now in part three of this third series, and we are covering a time period where Paul spent some time in a city named Ephesus. And we started talking about Ephesus last week, and we'll continue it this week, and then if the Lord wills, we'll continue to talk about it next week, because quite a number of things happened when Paul was in Ephesus. Um, It might be helpful for me to begin by reminding you that different cities have different personalities. So when I say we're covering Ephesus, I think it's good for us to remember, different cities have different personalities. New York is not the same as Boston, right? Yeah, they have a different feel. Los Angeles is not the same as Washington, D.C. Tallahassee and Daytona Beach do not have the same vibe. Is that correct? Right. Um, These cities and the people within them have different personalities, although when we're speaking of individual people, we usually use the word personality. When we refer to whole cities, we usually use a word more like culture. Different cities have different cultures. Well, the same thing was true about ancient cities um, in the Roman Empire. In fact, you can see this is really obvious in Acts chapter 17, verse 21. Luke is the one who wrote the book, so he's the narrator, and he says this about the uh, city of Athens, Greece, in Acts 17, verse 21. He says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new, right? Athens was a city obsessed with new ideas, and Luke does not say this about any of the other cities Paul visited, just Athens. Why? because different cities have different cultures. Um, So today we're gonna continue to cover Paul's time in Ephesus, and I think it would be good for me to let you know that Ephesus was a very spiritual city, okay? As best as I can tell, there might've been a lot of spiritual cities in the Roman Empire back then, but it seems like Ephesus was um, especially spiritual um, in that they they were well-known for their worship of Artemis, which is the goddess of fertility, also known as Diana, so Diana or Artemis. And so they had this big temple in Ephesus that was devoted to her. And it was just, they were, you were just kind of known like, like, Ephes- like the Ephesians, they're into Artemis and all of the surrounding areas knew that there was a temple there devoted to her and she was the goddess um, of, that, of that city. There were people in Ephesus who, were, um, who performed exorcisms And I don't know if they were there regularly or not. There's a group of itinerant exorcists that are there at the time that Paul is there. We're going to read about them. There were many people in the city of Ephesus who had um, books with magic spells in them, and they would pay big money for these magic formulas. So as you read the story, you'll be able to see Ephesus was not a town of atheists, right? This was not a town of people who believed the only things that exist are the things that I can see. No, these, are, they, these people believed in the spiritual, they believed in the supernatural. Um, and so when Paul shows up there, he does not have to spend a bunch of time convincing these people that there is a God or that there are evil beings like you know, demons and things like that. Like, I think that was just a given before Paul ever showed up to the city. And so what happens in Ephesus is a showdown. 
between Paul's spirituality and the Ephesians' spirituality. And when I say Paul's spirituality, I'm referring to the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay, if when you say, what is Paul's spirituality? Jesus, okay, that's who he was into. And then there are these, the Ephesians, and they're into um, Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And so this story that I'm about to read to you, you're gonna be able to see, this is not an intellectual debate between Paul and the Ephesians. Rather, this is a show of spiritual power that God does to these people who are not Christians, and yet they are spiritual people. So let me go ahead and read the story to you. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. This is the word of God. Acts 19, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands, so that even face cloths or work aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them all and prevailed against them so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And then fear fell on all of them and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and try to make it a little easier to follow by breaking it into three sections. We're going to talk about it in three sections, and the three sections are, at least the way I'm going to label them is this. Number one, God validates Paul's ministry. Number two, God invalidates the ministry of others. And then number three, the people honor Jesus and repent of their previous ways. So those are the three sections if you want to take notes or follow along. God validates Paul's ministry. God invalidates the ministry of others, and then the people honor Jesus and repent of their previous ways. So let's take them one at a time, starting with God validates Paul's ministry. That's one of the things that you see happens in this city. Okay, he shows up to Ephesus. We started talking about it last week. And then in these passages, you see that extraordinary things were happening, right? Miraculous things were done at the hands of Paul. And you can see that God is um, validating his ministry in the very first couple of verses of Acts 19, verse 11 and 12. It says, God, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. Now, the fact that the miracles were being performed by Paul's hands is how I'm, the reason I'm saying that, that God was validating Paul's ministry. Like People were able to see that Paul was doing things, things that were connected to him, his hands, his skin, where these miraculous things were happening. And so people were realizing there's, some, there's something about Paul and whatever it is that he believes or whoever it is he believes in. Now, the passage makes it very clear God was the one doing the miraculous, not Paul, right? God was the one that was performing the extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. Now, what kind of miracles does it say they are? Okay, extraordinary. I just want you to think about that. Just think about the phrase extraordinary miracles for about three seconds. It's redundant, isn't it? Yeah, you got it. Like, that's weird. Wait, why in the world would you say extraordinary miracles? Miracles are extraordinary by definition. You don't even need the adjective. That's what a miracle is. Miracles, by definition, are not what ordinarily happens, right? So why in the world does Luke say that God was performing extraordinary miracles? And I think, if you read the rest of the verse, what he's saying is, oh, yes, miracles are, are extraordinary, but th what was happening in Ephesus was extraordinary even for miracles, okay? This was extraordinary, extraordinary stuff that was happening. Well, what was it? 
Well, people were being healed of sicknesses, but that's not unique to Ephesus, right? Uh, Paul had healed a lame man in Lystra, so this is not the first healing that Paul has done in these cities. There are possessed people who are being freed, but that's not unique to Ephesus. That had happened back in Philippi. What's unique in, in the story of Ephesus? What's unique about this story is the miracles were portable through pieces of cloth, right? Even face cloths or work aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So when he says extraordinary miracles, I think that's why, because that's like nothing else in the whole Bible, right? There are times when people are healed. There are times when people are freed um, from, a, from a, an evil spirit. But this idea that, the, that, that God would, through Paul's hands, cause there to be some sort of power in a piece of cloth that could then be delivered to someone across town, there's, there's nothing else I know of in the Bible like this. So God is very much validating Paul's ministry. You can see even the local exorcists in this town, like see what Paul's doing, must be listening to the words he's using and the stuff he's into, and they try to imitate it. Look at verse 13. It says, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. It sounds like they're going like, well, I want to cast out some evil spirits. So I see it's working over here. Paul's doing it. Okay, well, what is he saying when he does it? He says something about Jesus. Jesus? Okay, I'll write that down. All right, that's, that's good. We've never used, we haven't used his name, right? We haven't, yeah, okay, let's do that. And so then they go, and look what it says. It says, they tried to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by, and you can tell, they don't even know Jesus, do they? By the Jesus that Paul preaches, right? So they're like, we, in the name of Jesus, do you know his last name? No? All right, the one that Paul talks about. We, you know, I mean, they said, so they, they are associating Jesus with Paul. They wouldn't know about Jesus, I think, any other way than, than through Paul. And so God validates Paul's ministry in the things that Jesus was doing through him. Well, then the next thing we see is that God invalidates the ministry of others. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Okay, so apparently some Jewish chief priest, his name is Siva, so he's got seven sons. If he has seven sons, that means they are seven brothers to each other. And there they were, and they were, according to this passage, they were doing this. What's the this? They were trying to cast out demons in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches, right? Now look what happens. The evil spirit answers them. So this is when they say, okay, demon, you need to get out of here in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. The evil spirit answered them. I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Never heard of you guys. I heard those other two names. I don't know who you are. And then the man who had the evil spirit, and this is interesting. So the spirit, like the evil spirit within him, like empowers him. The man who had the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them all. Like this is seven guys. And one guy takes on all seven, beats every single one of them, overpowered them all and prevailed against them so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. So these guys are trying to, it looks like, trying to use Jesus as a magic word right? They're, they've heard Paul say something about Jesus, so they're seeing if they can do supernatural things with this, with this Jesus. And so they are appealing to the authority of Jesus without being in relationship with Jesus. Do you see that? Right? These are, they're, they're bossing people around, or at least bossing evil spirits around, by the authority of someone they don't even follow. And Jesus did not honor their request, did he? No, rather, the possessed man beat the clothes off of them. I, I was reading in a book this week, and I came across a quote from a pastor that I thought was great, so I'm just going to say it to you. He said something like this. He said, who won this fight? Well, if you began the fight with pants, and afterwards, you're not wearing pants, 
you lost. <laughs> That's some good theology there. <laughs> so the reason that I'm saying that God invalidated these exorcists is because of the reaction that the Ephesians have to this event. Look at the very next verse, verse 17. It says, this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus. What became known? The seven naked dudes running out of there bleeding and they lost the fight. Like everybody went, whoa, did you hear about the seven sons of Siva? Yeah, I saw it. They were like going by and I was hiding my children's eyes. And like it was, yes, I, we saw that. And everybody's, that's all everybody's talking about. The man, uh, sorry, so this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now look, then fear fell on all of them. What kind of fear? I think you can tell. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. An awe or a reverence about Jesus falls over this town when they see this is what Paul is doing in the name of Jesus. And then look at what these guys are doing. They, they ran out of there, didn't have any clothes. They were all beat up. And so the Ephesians took what they saw happening in the city as a sign from God. And so that's what I mean by God invalidated the, the exorcists and, and what they were doing. I mean, in one way, you could say God did, actually didn't have to do anything to invalidate their ministry. Like all he had to do in this particular instance was just not intervene, right? When they're going around messing with the demons, they just, all, all, all God had to do was just not intervene and let the evil spirit do its thing. And that had a humiliating effect on these seven men. And I think that's why the nakedness is mentioned in the passage, because these men weren't just wounded. Like they were wounded and shamed, and it communicated something to the city about Jesus, right? That the way Paul is handling Jesus is right. The way the sons of Siva are handling Jesus is wrong. And, and everybody knew that. All right, number three. The people honor Jesus and repent of their previous ways. For this, I'll read you verses 18 and 19 one more time. It says, And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. While many of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So many people became believers. Uh, but this wasn't just many people. Many people became believers who had been practicing magic. So that's what makes me say, I th Ephesus seems to be a different kind of city than the other cities that Paul was at. There, this doesn't happen in any of the other cities. And you have all of these magical people who are then turning away from their supernatural beliefs and, and they became believers in Jesus Christ. Multiple people. Many people who believed in certain things became believers in Jesus when they saw what they saw and heard what they heard. Okay, and so many of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. And so these people, they, they are followers of whoever, they have all whatever their spiritual beliefs are, and then they become followers of Jesus and they repent of their previous spirituality. And what did they do with the books? Yeah, they burned them rather than selling them. Isn't that interesting? They had these books and they burned them rather than selling them. I realize it doesn't say they burned them rather than selling them. It just says they burned them. But the reason why I bring up the, the possible idea of selling them is look at the rest of the verse. They burn them in front of everyone. And I guess as they're burning them, somebody goes, hey, um, so what are, what are these things worth? Somebody should just make sure we, you know, we've thought this through, right? So they calculated the value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So, I mean, I don't know how much 50,000, I don't know how big the pieces are, so I don't know how any way to, to guess this other than to say this is probably hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, right? Why in the world did they burn them rather than sell them? I assume it's because they understood, they, they understood they could not sell these books because the content of the books was bad, not only for them, but for anyone else also. Does that make sense? 
But there are certain things in our life that we go, well, this is not very good for me, but maybe it would be helpful to somebody else. I'll sell this. Maybe they will be helped by this thing that was not helpful for me. But there are certain situations where you come across something, you go, no, this is bad for me, and it's bad for everybody. And so I just, I need to burn it. I need to get rid of it. I can't sell it to somebody because it wouldn't be good for them either. Now, we don't deal with a lot of magic books in this sort of scenario in, um, in, our, in Marion County, I don't think. Um, but let me go ahead and make this a little bit more of an American illustration. Imagine that here in Marion County, there was a drug dealer, okay? This should not be difficult, okay? Just imagine, <laughs> imagine a drug dealer exists in Marion County, okay? And imagine this drug dealer becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Like someone shares the gospel and like legitimately, Jesus is now my Lord who I will obey, the Savior who I trust in. And now he looks at his stash. What's he supposed to do with it? What's he supposed to do with it? He's got to get rid of it, doesn't he? He's got to burn it. He's got to do something, right? He can't, I think if he truly is a follower of Jesus, he can't go like, well, this is worth a lot, right? So Jesus, like, you're my Lord and all, but like, I got I to gotta sell this. And then once it's all done, then I'll, you know, sell insurance or whatever. But, but like, I got to do this last thing. Like, no, no, if Jesus is his Lord, he's got to get rid of that, right? There's a point where he's going to go, now that I'm a Christian, I can't make money off of harming people anymore, right? Hmm. She says, it seemed like you weren't sure about that. Now that I'm a Christian, I shouldn't make money off of harming people anymore. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Yeah, that's like real basic. Like I'm, I'm thinking we need to do a whole other series if we don't know. <laughs> I shouldn't make money harming people. This was good. We went to church this morning. Like, okay, yes, yes, it was. Okay, so final verse of the passage. After all this happens, it says, in this way, meaning because of all the stuff that had just happened before this, in this way, the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. And so that's where we end our passage this morning. Let me go ahead and end with two observations of how this passage can apply to our lives. The first observation I want to give you is this. Spiritual activity goes on around us even though we can't see it. I thought that this was an important thing for us to remember, and this passage makes it obvious. Spiritual activity goes on all around us even though we can't see it with our eyes. I grew up in a church that did not focus very much on this aspect of the Bible, and so I didn't really think about this stuff growing up. But as I become an adult, I become just more aware that there's an invisible world doing stuff that's affecting my world, and I can't see it. And it's all throughout the Bible. Um, I, just recently, I was looking at this story from 2 Kings. It's a kind of famous story where Elisha is there, and there's an army that's coming to get Elisha. And there is a like heavenly army that of like angels, I suppose, that is, they're protecting Elisha, but they can't be seen. And somehow Elisha knows. Do you remember this story? And he says to his servant, open his eyes so that he can see. And it looks like God just for a moment allows the servant to be able to see what normally is invisible. And he goes, whoa, there's more people on our side than on their side. They, they were, the way the story's written, it doesn't sound like they appeared. It sounds like they were there and just could be seen. God just allowed them to see him for a second. Spiritual activity goes on even when we can't see it. A real famous story from the Old Testament is the book of Job. Okay, a lot of people know Job because like super lot of suffering. Like one day Job was good and then one day he had a very, very bad day. And from his perspective, like life just got awful. But if you pay attention to the story, what was going on at the same time that Job's life got awful is God and Satan were having a conversation about Job. God and Satan can see Job and affect Job, and are talking about Job, but Job can't see or hear any of that. He's just living his life and having a hard time. 
And so this is just something we see throughout the scripture, and I think it was really obvious. Let me show you the place in this passage where it kind of jumped out to me. We look at verse 15 one more time. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize who? Paul. But who are you? When I was studying this just this earlier this year, I was like, wow, that's crazy. The evil spirit had heard of Paul. Isn't that interesting? Like he had heard of, so the the evil spirit knew Jesus. Now that makes sense to me. The fact that the evil spirits know who Jesus is does not surprise me at all. The creator of the universe, they knew who that was. But they knew who Paul was. They were like, yeah, yeah, we know him. We recognize that name. And I just wondered, like, are there evil spirits in Marion County who've heard of you? Who've heard of me? Who would recognize my name? I don't know. But I think it is good for us to remember there is stuff going on in an invisible realm that we do not know about. And I realize in a room this size, there's going to be some certain percentage of you that are going to be a little skeptical of that. Oh, Christians, why do they got to talk about this invisible realm weirdness? Why can't they just talk about love and help the poor? And why got to be invisible? Why? But I want to remind you, first of all, everybody in here, invisible things exist. You already know invisible things exist, Right? First of all, let me just start with one that we all agree on. We'll start with common ground and then move from there. Let's start with what we all agree about. Okay, COVID exists, right? Yeah, there's three years. I probably remember there was stuff that happened in the last three years. Okay, related to COVID. It was, it was a crazy three years and it's because we couldn't see it. It's invisible. That's the reason why it was such a big deal because we couldn't, like the reason why people were wearing masks and the reason why people were going one way down the grocery store aisles for a little while, right? And you grab the stuffing and then you go, I need two. And then you're like, oh, nope, I'm gonna have to go all the way around the potato chip aisle and then back over to the stuffing, right? And the reason that was happening is because you can't see it, right? You can't dodge it. Like if you could see it, we'd have dodged it. If I saw COVID coming, I'd jump behind the produce bin, let it pass by and I would have been fine but I couldn't see it. You couldn't see it. That's the whole point. Now you might go, oh, oh, yes, of course, Mario. Okay. Yes, there are invisible things, but COVID is invisible, not because it's spiritual, but because it's microscopic. Oh yes, I am. I know I'm fully aware. I just wanted to begin where we have common ground. Okay. There is an invisible realm called the microscopic. We all agree that exists. In addition to the microscopic, there are things that are invisible that are invisible, not because they're too small to be seen, but because they are immaterial. They're not made of any material. You might go, what? What invisible things are not made of anything? Like love, I would imagine most everybody in this room thinks love is a thing, right? Hate exists, loyalty, betrayal, Uh, math is a thing. (laughs) Logic, like these are things that they actually exist in reality, right? Like two plus two equals four, it equals four every single time, right? Why? Because math truly exists, but you can't build a chair out of it, right? It's immaterial. Logic exists. Something cannot be both A and not A at the same time and in the same way. That is true. Like that is a logical principle that exists in reality. But you can't touch it. You can't feel it. Your wife's affection for you or your mother's affection for you or your mother's selfishness, whatever it may be. Like you can't see it. It exists though, right? Math exists. Logic exists. Love exists hate exists, and you can't build a house out of any of that stuff. And I'm saying that the Bible gives us a third category. So we got the microscopic, we got the immaterial, and then maybe a third category, or maybe it's just more of the second category. There are immaterial things. God exists. Satan exists. Angels and demons exist. 
and they affect our world, even if we can't see them. The second thing, the second observation of how this story can apply to our life, and I think this is so important, this story is a great reminder that repentance is costly. What did the Ephesians do? The ones that practice magic. They did what? They burned their books. Let's put verse 19 back up there. See, repentance is costly. How costly? Those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone so that they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Following Jesus is free. And yet it always costs us something. Following Jesus is free, and yet it always costs us something. Paul, as he is talking to the Ephesians, um, tells them, you know, obviously to believe in Jesus, and many of them do. Paul did not charge them anything for this, right? He did not say it costs anything to follow Jesus. These people who saw what happened to the seven sons of Siva and then saw what was happening in Paul's life and said, we want to follow whoever it is that you're following, right? Paul didn't say, oh, well, you can. It's just $49.95 a month. That's what it costs to be in the club. No, following Jesus is free. You believe in him as your savior. You trust in him as the one who took care of the problem of your sins and you believe in him as your Lord. He's the one I'm gonna follow and obey. That's free. And these people who were following Jesus for free realized that even though they're following Jesus for free, they realized they had to get rid of something. They had to. Because that's what happens when there are changes in your values. When you value something and then you value something else a lot more than that something, it changes the way you relate to the something. Right? If you value Jesus over everything, it will affect the way that you handle everything. And this is not just true about Jesus. This is true about anything that we love. All of our values are this way. I can think just as an illustration of a love that's lesser than the love that we have for God, but it does the same thing. Okay? I am in love with Heidi Valella. Okay? That is the name of my wife. She's sitting right over there. Okay? I love you. And I am in love with her, but there was a time in my life when I was not in love with her. There was a time in my life when I didn't even know her, okay? And during the time that I did not know her, it cost me nothing, okay? Like, like the, the number of dollars I spent on Heidi before I met her was zero. <laughs> and then one day, we started dating, right? And then as we started dating, what happened? I started spending money on her, right? <laughs> and not because she charged me. She didn't say like $49.99 a month to be my boyfriend. She didn't charge me anything. I just started voluntarily giving up money, right? Because there was something that was more valuable to me than the money was, right? Something happened. A new love, a new value came into my life. And then one day we got married. And on the day we got married, I gave her my whole life, right? I pledged my whole life to her. On the day we got married, she got, get this, all of my money. All of my money is hers now. Every penny I own is hers now. Why? Because that's what happens when a value valuable, more valuable than the other value comes along. You go, oh, well, this doesn't matter anymore. This is what matters. And so these people said, we got to get rid of these books. We've got Jesus. And so if you are someone who's, you're a follower of Jesus this morning in this room, and I'm assuming we're in this room this size, there's several, lots of people who follow Jesus in this room. And if following Jesus has cost you something, I feel like it had to have. It had to have by now. If following Jesus has cost you something, I just want you to know, like, don't be bitter about that. That's perfectly normal. And he's worth it. And if God is calling you to let go of something this week, 
And that may not be all of you, but I bet you in a room this size, there are some of you, that God wants you to let go of something that is less valuable than him because he is of surpassing greatness that needs to go. And I just want to encourage, if God is calling you to let go of something this week, let it go. It's worth it. Let it go for the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. If it's one of those things, well, can I sell it? Maybe don't even sell it. It might not even be the kind of thing you can sell. But there may be some of you that go, no, no, Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world to me. It changes my everything. And I now realize, not that this is the price of admission. He loves me for free and I'm in for free. And yet, I'm gonna need to let this go. And I hope you do. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this passage and the wild adventures that Paul went through. Thank you for validating his ministry there in Ephesus. Crazy what happened with those seven guys. I pray that you would help us to be aware of the spiritual world. And I pray that you would guide us through it. Like there's, this, there's the world we live in and there's all the stuff we can't see, but we have you. We have you who we can't see, who can guide us through the whole thing. And so we ask for your protection and that you would deliver us from the evil one. We also pray that you would, um, well, first of all, I just, I thank you. I thank you that you're so worthy, that it's worth whatever to follow you and to continue following you. And so I pray you'd help us, like as a congregation, help us to get rid of anything that's in the way. Help us to burn it, throw it away, whatever it is, get rid of it. And I thank you that you don't charge us because we'd never be able to pay the price. Thank you that you paid the price. And so we thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.